in the passage of Scripture that I just read, the Lord takes it as a given that his disciples will be arrested for their preaching and brought before powers and magistrates and be called on to give an account for what they had to say. Would you turn with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 10 and look at Matthew's more expanded version of this passage of Scripture? Beginning in verse 17. But beware of men. This is when he was sending out his disciples. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you to the councils, and they will scourge you, beat you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it's not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye again to another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciples not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It's enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Look down in verse 34 of this same chapter. The Lord says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. Have everybody get along, one big happy family. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Turn to John chapter 15. I repeat, the Lord takes it as a given when his gospel is preached, trouble will be with it. People will be offended, people will be upset. Even members of families will grow against each other in this thing of the gospel. Look in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 16, he says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen 
you and ordain you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now these things I command you that you love one another if the world hate you. You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they'll keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, then had they had no sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a Now, Paul said that wherever he went to preach, he said, bonds and afflictions abide me. Paul knew that when he went into a town, after he was finished preaching, he was going to get tied up to a post and they were either going to beat him or throw him in jail. And he said, none of these things move me. Now, I repeat, the Lord takes it as a given that we will be persecuted in the preaching of the gospel. This is even included in the Beatitudes when the Lord describes what a believer is. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is the last Beatitude. Now this is what the Bible says. This is not somebody with a martyr complex. This is not someone trying to stir up trouble, stir up, no. No. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Word of God says. Look what the Lord says in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, before I go on, remember whose righteousness he's talking about. He's not talking about human righteousness. If you preach human righteousness, everybody's going to be all for you. They'll put you in the paper. They'll talk about all the good things you've done. He's not talking about human righteousness. He's talking about the only righteousness there is, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our personal righteousness before God. And we maintain his righteousness is the only righteousness there is. Do you believe that? Now, blessed are you that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. God's blessing is upon you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, if men are not offended... And angered over our preaching, we are not preaching the gospel of the scriptures.
We're preaching a gospel man can accept, but not a gospel that God will accept. You see, God's gospel is offensive to the natural man. And the Lord takes it as a given in these passages of Scripture. You preach the gospel, you will be persecuted. Men will have no love for your message. Now, I have entitled this message, Why Men Hate the Cross. Why Men Hate the Cross. Now, I'm not talking about the cross that's used for jewelry and tattoos and placard all over religious buildings. I'm not talking about that cross at all. As a matter of fact, men like that cross. But let me say this. If you look the word cross up in the Greek dictionary, it wasn't this. It's a pole. Christ was nailed to a tree. He was stretched out with his hands over him. It's a pole. They wouldn't have taken the time to put a cross together. That would have made it easier. This is more painful if you're stretched out that way. Now, this is not talking about the religious symbolism of the cross. Men love that, but what the cross actually declares, men hate Christ, men hate God, and men hate His way of saving sinners. Now, men don't hate the false notions they have of God and Christ and salvation. Men feel quite comfortable with the God that they have some measure of control over. Nobody's afraid of that God. Now, if I've got a God that I can control, that I, if, I, if I decide I can let him save me, he's, he'll save me. And if I, but if I hold him off, you know, he'll be held up. Nobody's afraid of that God because that God you have some kind of control over, a measure of control. But the God who has absolute control and you're in his hand and he can do with you whatever he's pleased to do, that God men do not love. But that is the God of the Bible. Now, men, I ask the question, why do men hate the cross? It's not the cross, material cross they hate, but what the cross rep tells us of who God is. You see, all that God is is seen in Jesus Christ being nailed to that cross. Every attribute, every, his holiness, his hatred of sin, his absolute justice, his absolute sovereignty. If you were going to take one word to describe God, well, Christ, I suppose, would be the first word you'd choose. But you know what the second word would be? The cross. The cross is the whole counsel of God. Now, my question is why? And you know, I could give a lot of reasons why that would be fine and good. But you know what I want to do? I want to go to the place in the Bible where the first man was murdered because of his belief. And there we can find out why men hate the cross. We're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel. Now, remember, the Lord takes it as a given. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be cast out. You're going to have all kinds of accusations hurled against you. Now, why? That question is answered in the story of Cain and Abel. Now, in this story, most of you are familiar with it, we have the two representative men. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 
And let me say this. I'm going to be describing me and you. I'm going to be giving a very accurate description of me and you. Me and you are represented by one of these two men, Cain and Abel. And these two men, with their two different sacrifices, are representative of the two religions, grace and works. Now, there are only two religions, grace and works. Man's sacrifice that he provides or God's sacrifice that he provides. There are only two religions. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, look at verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Now, that does not mean they were having a dialogue and that they were having a discussion and talking about different points. It's actually they were arguing. They were arguing. That's what the word means. It carries with it the idea of challenge and speaking against. Now, during this discussion, and Cain and Abel, and Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he slew him. He murdered him. He became so angry at what his brother was saying, he felt a need to put him to death. What was the issue? And if we can find the answer, we'll know the answer to the question that this sermon is entitled by. Why do men hate the cross? Now, in the previous chapter, we have the story of the fall. And most men never really hear about what took place in the Garden of Eden. They think of Eve this beautiful woman or a beautiful husband, they see this lovely apple or orange or whatever, I guess whatever kind of where you're from, that's the native fruit there, they think that's the fruit. But she was hungry and she sees this beautiful apple, this beautiful red apple, and she was hungry and she was just tempted and she was just overwhelmed by it. She said, I gotta have it. And she took it and ate it and there we have the fall. Now is that what took, took place? No. No. There's a whole lot more involved in the fall than that. Now look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. I think it's uh, very interesting that work was before the fall. Work's a good thing. It was before the fall. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now here's the command. Don't eat it. And here's the fact. When you do, this is what's going to take place. He didn't say, if you eat of the fruit. He said, in the day you do, you shall surely die. Now, here's the point. Could God have prevented Adam and Eve from falling? Of course he could. He's God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? But he didn't. And he has wise, glorious, and holy purposes in the fall. Now, Remember, if Adam would have never fallen, 
What would we ever know of the forgiveness of sins? What would we ever know of the freeness of God's grace? What would we ever know of the love of God? You see, God does what he does to manifest who he is. Chapter 3. Well, the, let's look at the last verse of chapter 2. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The reason being, they had unfallen natures. They had innocent natures. If they would see someone naked, they would not have one sinful thought. They wouldn't even enter in. They had innocent natures. And I, to me, I think it's important that we bring out that they didn't have holy natures. You see, holiness cannot sin. They sinned. They had innocent natures. The wise man said, Lo, this I know that God hath made man upright. That's how animals were made. But man sought out many inventions. Now, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. They had no sinful disposition. Now, let's go and read it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle, deceitful, brilliant, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now here's his first point of attack. He changes what God said. God said you can eat of every tree but one. And he said, Did God say you can't eat of any of these trees? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, I don't remember reading where God said not to touch it. I think any time you add something to God's word, you're, you're in trouble. I think this is where that touch not, taste not, handle not mentality came from. Eve said, the, the, the fall had already begun, really. I mean, it had already begun when she didn't believe precisely what God said. And she makes this addition. Verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. Now, it's a bold-faced lie. You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Now, this tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And right now, all you are is a robot. You're just doing what you've been created to do. You're upright. There's no moral virtue in your innocence because you're not making any choices. You're just being good because it's your nature. But this is what will make you like God. When you know both good and evil, and you choose the good over the evil, that is what will make you like God. You'll have a free will. Right now, you don't have a free will. You're just obeying your nature. But if you make this choice, you're going to have a free will, and that's going to make you just like God. And there's going to be moral virtue to your goodness then, because you're choosing to be. That's what's going to make you like God. You know, that sounds good, doesn't it? 
He sounds good. And Eve said, yeah, that, that sounds good. Verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also and her husband with her and he did eat and the eyes of them both were opened and they knew they were naked. Now they were naked before this took place but it wasn't an issue. Now it is an issue. They now have these fallen natures. Now you'll remember God said in the day you eat thereof you'll surely die. Well, they didn't die physically. We know that. They're still acting. But they died spiritually. And that was seen in their understanding of their nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The first thing they did was make a covering for their nakedness. Salvation by works, providing your own covering. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. There was a time when they relished his presence, but no more. No more. Wherever God is, they don't want to be. They hid themselves from the presence of God. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, Now he, we don't read where he asked for forgiveness. Oh, I messed up. I shouldn't have done this. Would you please forgive me? I'm sorry. No, he ran from God's presence. And when God confronts him with what he's done, he actually blames God. He couldn't take personal responsibility for what he did. Men have been doing that ever since then. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And I did eat. And if you would have never given me this woman, it would have never taken place. It's really your fault. And Eve said the same. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me. It's his fault. He deceived me. And I did eat. <clears throat> we have the promise of the gospel right after that, though. Verses 14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, the seed of woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the seed of Adam. He's the seed of woman. He'll bruise, crush your head, and you'll, crush his, you'll bruise his heel. And that's a reference to the cross. Now look what happened in verse 21 of this chapter. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Now, this is the first death. Have you ever watched even an animal die? It's alive, 
and all of a sudden, it's dead. Now, Adam and Eve had never seen anything like this, and they saw the Lord take that, have no doubt it was a lamb, and slay it and cover them with its skins, prefiguring the gospel. Salvation through the Lamb. Now, I have no doubt that Adam taught both of these boys. Now, look, let's start in chapter 4. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And I don't have any doubt that she meant, I've gotten the man. The, prom- the, the woman's seed that's going to come and bruise the serpent's head. She was very excited about this. I've gotten this man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass. Now, let me remind you, both of the, Adam and Eve were born innocent. These boys weren't. They were born evil. They were born dead in trespasses and sins. That's the way they were born. Now, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now, I don't have any doubt that God taught these boys that the only way God could be approached is through the sacrifice of the coming Lamb of God. This wasn't just a religious ritual and meaningless. That He taught these boys, God is holy, we're sinful, God's justice must be satisfied, we can't approach God on our own, we can only approach God through the sacrifice of the coming Lamb of God. And Cain knew this, but he thought, does it make any difference what kind of sacrifice you bring? I mean, as long as I'm sincere, as long as I do my best, and and I'm bringing this fruit to the ground, I've done done my best. I mean, it's just as good. I mean, God looks at the heart. My heart's right. I might not, I'm not going to be legalistic about this thing. I mean, it doesn't make that much difference what you bring. I'm going to bring the fruit of the ground, and I believe God will accept that. Verse 4, and Abel... He also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. Uh, Cain brought a bloodless sacrifice. As Scott Richardson said, he was a turnip farmer. You can't squeeze blood out of a turnip. He, did, he didn't bring a blood sacrifice, but a bloodless sacrifice. And he demonstrated by that what he really thought about God and what he really thought about himself. I mean, it just revealed how he had no regard to God's character and his justice being vindicated. And he, he thought, I can just come. He thought he was good enough to do it. Here's my best. I'd accept it. Surely God would too. He thought God was just like he was. And here he comes, but not Abel. Abel brings what he knew he had to bring, a bloody sacrifice that typified the coming Son of God. He knew what he's doing because the Scripture says in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and he being dead, yet speaketh. And he's speaking us tonight. By faith, he offered unto God this more excellent sacrifice. He was looking to the coming Lamb of God. 
And you know what it says? Look in the last verse, sentence of verse 4. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Now, I can't think of anything more glorious than the God of glory having respect to something. He had respect to Abel. Not just Abel's offering, but Abel. And his offering, you see, Abel could not be separated from his offering. Would you ever want to be separated from Christ crucified? Would you ever want to be viewed in any way other than in the Lamb? Now, if you're in Christ, God respects you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He respects you and esteems you very highly. Now, that is the power of the blood of Christ. God had respect to Abel and to his offering. Verse 5, and you know why he had respect. Do I need, yeah, I do need to say that. He had respect because of Christ and his offering, because of Christ and his blood. It didn't have anything to do with this physical lamb and, and Abel. It was all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's always been the lamb slain in the Father's eye, but he had to come in time, and this was prefiguring him coming in time. God had respect to Abel and to his offering. Verse 5, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Now, I guess one of the most painful things there is is to not be respected. We want people to respect us, don't we? God had no respect to Cain and to his offering. He disregarded it. It did not meet his approval in any way. He had no respect. You see, there's a reason he had no respect. Um, he was showing his disrespect for God. For one thing, he was offering something God never commanded. He never told him to bring the fruit of the ground. And number two, he was showing great presumption in doing this. He was saying, I'm holy enough to come into God's presence. This is what Cain was saying, and he could accept what I do. Abel said, there's no way God can accept me apart from the coming Lamb of God. That's exactly what he was saying. And God had no respect to Cain in his offering, and Cain was offended by this. Scripture says he, he was very wroth, and his countenance fell. You could see it in his face. He didn't like what was going on. He thought, this is not Fair. That's exactly what he thought. This is not fair. I've worked hard. I presented my best. And God gave no respect to what I did. None. Not a drop. And here he respects Abel and his offering. This is not fair. God is making a difference. And once again, he was com demonstrating complete ignorance of the holiness of God and his, and his own sinfulness. And all of a sudden, he becomes God's judge. 
He sat in judgment on God. This is not right what you're doing. Um, he was mad. His countenance was fallen. It's not right for you to accept Abel and to have respect for him and just disregard me. It's not right. You're making a difference. You're showing favoritism. God's being a respecter of persons. He's, he's showing favoritism to Cain, I mean Abel, and not me. Now, he became God's judge. Verse 6. Now look at the Lord's reply to him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well and bring the sacrifice in obedience to what I said, shalt thou not be accepted? If Cain would have brought the right sacrifice, he would have been accepted. But he didn't. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now, Here's the bottom line. You bring the right sacrifice. You come pleading Christ. Now, I'm saying this to everybody here. Listen real carefully. You don't need to worry. I promise you. You don't need to worry and try to figure out whether or not you're one of the elect or if Christ died for you. You don't need to worry about that. You come pleading Christ only and you will be received. You will. You come pleading nothing but the blood of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You come pleading His sacrifice. Not what you do. Not what you intend to do. Can you get any comfort from the sacrifice? I think of what Isaac said to Abraham. Here's the wood. Here's the fire. Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? God said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. You can't provide anything that God would accept. But God provides what God accepts. He provided for himself. For him to do something for me or you, he first had to do something for himself. And he provided himself as the lamb for the burnt offering. Do you find comfort in that? What about when God said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. He didn't say, When I see your faith. He didn't say, When I see your intentions. He didn't say, When I see your reformation. He didn't say, When I see your good works. He didn't say, when I see your efforts. He said, when I see what? The blood. What's the only thing the Lord was looking for? The blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Well, they had a discussion after this. Verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against, his, against Abel his brother, and he slew him. And what do you reckon they were talking about? There was only one thing they were talking about. 
the sacrifices. That is the issue. The sacrifice. Cain was upset because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and he didn't accept his. I'm sure Abel attempted to tell his angry brother why God had respect to him and not to Cain. It's not something personal in me. I'm not better than you. It has wholly to do with the sacrifice. And Cain, all he could see was unfairness and favoritism. But this offering of the fruit of the ground was an insult to God. It was a denial of God's holiness. And it was a bringing himself up on some kind of good level of works that God could deny, that God could accept. And all it was was an offense to God. Now Abel's offering was a declaration of the cross. The cross of Christ tells me that God is holy and that I'm completely sinful and the only way I can be brought into his presence is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abel said, the only way I am saved is not by my works. They're no good and neither yours. I can only be saved by him who is to come for me and shed his precious blood for me. That's the only hope I had. And Abel said, blood, I'll show you blood. And he rose up and he slew him. Now, why do men hate the cross? I can, I, can, I can bring it down to this one statement. Men hate the cross because it takes away what they're hoping in. That's the bottom line. Men hate the cross because they find hope somewhere else. And the cross of Christ says your hope is no good. And that's when men get upset. Now, if you tell them as long as you're, you might not believe this, but you might still be saved. You know, I'm, I'm okay, you're okay. Yeah, but nobody's going to get too upset by that. But when you preach the cross, what he actually accomplished. Turn over to Romans 8. Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What could possibly prevent God from giving his great grace to you if Christ died for you? There's nothing that can prevent him. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. That's the only answer I need. That's the only answer I need. You can bring up all kinds of accusations. The devil can bring up all kinds of accusations. True. But there's only one answer I need. It's Christ that died. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Now that's the issue of the cross. The reason men hate the cross. Now, if you, if you preach the cross in such a way, you say, well, Jesus Christ died for you and, 
and he's made salvation possible for you and he's made his blood available for you and all you've got to do is accept it and then it'll come to you. But if you reject it, it, that's not the preaching of the cross. That's the preaching of another gospel. There's no gospel in that message. But the message of the cross, Christ succeeded in what he did. When he said it is finished, all my hope is right there. That when he said it is finished, it was indeed finished. And I don't need anything else to make me perfect before God. Now that is the message and the preaching of the cross. Now, somebody who finds hope somewhere else, they're going to hate that message. But I tell you who loves this message. Everybody who has no other hope but this. Every single one of them will love the message of the cross. Now, may the Lord... I, I don't want us... I certainly don't want to be looking for a fight, looking to be argumentative and being worried that if people don't get mad at me, I'm not preaching the gospel. I, I, I don't want to try to look for something to make people mad. Let's, let's, may the Lord deliver us from ever making people mad because we're acting like jerks and trying to shove stuff down the throat. I don't want to do that. But I do want to do this. I want to preach the gospel of God in such a way that if somebody doesn't believe it, they'll hate me for what I've said because I preach the gospel so clearly that they've seen what I've said. Now, we want that, don't we? We want to be faithful witnesses of our Redeemer. Why men hate the cross? Well, I'll tell you this. There's a lot of men who love the cross of Christ. They love it. Now, we'd be wrong in saying men don't hate it because they do. But there's a whole lot of people who love the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.